Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, a new podcast from Phillips Academy where we'll share the compelling stories, thoughts, and ideas of Phillips Academy faculty, students, alumni, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show will feature candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to the important matters happening around the world. Today's episode gives us a fascinating glimpse into internment camp life for Japanese Americans during World War II through the eyes of two of its survivors. Sam Mahara and his wife Helene, both second-generation Japanese Americans, stopped by recently to chat about their experiences with Andover's history instructor, Damani Fisher. As you'll hear, Helene joins the conversation in the earlier half of the episode. Historian Damani Fisher studies the origins of residential segregation and struggle for fair housing. His latest paper, No Utopia, The African-American Struggle for Fair Housing in Post-World War II Sacramento, can be found in the anthology Introduction to Ethnic Studies. Our guest this afternoon is Sam Mahara. Sam Mahara is a second-generation Japanese-American, born and raised in San Francisco, California. In 1942, when the United States uh, declared war on Japan, uh, the U.S. government forced Sam and his family to relocate to a remote prison camp in northern Wyoming designated as the Heart Mountain Relocation Center. Sam and his family lived in one 20-square-foot room in Barrack 1422C for the next three years. After the war, Sam and his family faced the difficult task of returning to civilian life. They returned to San Francisco where Sam would complete high school before going on to earn his undergraduate and graduate degrees at UC Berkeley and UCLA respectively. After working many years at the Boeing company as a rocket scientist, Sam retired in 1997. Sam is a member of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation, a nonprofit corporation that is designated uh, to preserving the legacy of Japanese American Uh, incarceration during World War II and also preserving the site where the Heart Mountain Relocation uh, Center was located. Since 2011, he has traveled throughout the nation speaking to many schools, colleges, libraries, law firms, and federal agencies on the topic of Japanese American incarceration during the Second World War. Sam, uh, welcome to Phillips Academy Andover. It's a pleasure to, to have you here. Thank you very much. I enjoy being here and uh, glad to meet all the people here. Thank you. We had a very successful um, ev- uh, event uh, last night at uh, the Addison Gallery, and Sam gave a great presentation, and he um, looked at or did an analysis of some of the photographs that were taken by Ansel Adams uh, during World War II. So uh, we will talk about that at some point. But before we do that, I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about you know, your your background. Uh, I mentioned that you were born and raised mm-hmm. in San Francisco, but you know what about your parents? Um, why did your parents immigrate to the United States? Well, my my parents uh, uh, were born and raised in Japan. They, my father lived in a small town uh, west of uh, Tokyo, about four hundred miles, and. Um, uh, when he was going through high school, my grandparents uh, knew that uh, they wanted to get out of this of this uh, social economic strata that they were stuck in, which is uh, uh, in the working level class. 
uh, and it's been that way for many generations. I go back to seven generations, and everyone has been in, in this particular class, not being able to, to break out into to a, a more desirable uh, uh, way of living. So my grandparents uh, decided to uh, uh, send their son, my father, to a very good school. It's a place called Waseda University in Japan. And the major, his major was in English. Uh, and now with a background in both English and of course he's very good in Japanese, uh, he had a talent that was a little bit unique because uh, most of the immigrants from Japan were not uh, educated as well as my father was, and especially being bilingual. Uh, so he had no trouble. Uh, there was a newspaper in San Francisco that offered him a job. Um, when he, after just in fact, immediately after he graduated um, in Japan, uh, he uh, therefore immigrated, took the job, and brought the rest of the family. So it, it. Uh, the people who really gets credit for thinking this way and, and resulting in the immigration is, is my grandparents. My grandparents both worked uh, very hard to send their son uh, to a very good college. So that's how the Mihara clan began in the, in the city of San Francisco, right in the heart of Japantown, uh, in the center of the city. Did he ever tell you what uh, Japantown looked like upon his arrival? Uh, I mean, what did he what kind of city did he enter into when he uh, came to, to San Francisco? What did it look like? What was the, the community like? At the well, time? The, the neighborhood uh, was relatively uh, well-developed. It, it consists of a lot of uh, Victorian houses, uh, typical of San Francisco uh, architecture at that time. Um, and uh, he was able to uh, purchase, because of the new job he had, which is an editor of a newspaper, a bilingual newspaper in hmm. San Francisco, he was able to afford to uh, to purchase a very nice home. It was a, uh, a three-story uh, Victorian, and uh, so we had plenty of room, and uh, and, and life was very good to us uh, at that time uh, before the war began. Uh, and um, uh, in Japantown, the, the, the life was, uh, it's like a, a small Japanese community, or like other communities in San Francisco. There was, there was an Italian community, there was a German community, and, uh, and everyone uh, got along quite well. We did not face the, uh, a lot of discrimination, racial hatred uh, uh, before the war. Uh, there had been reports of other communities, smaller communities that had such problems, uh, especially in the farm communities. But uh, in the big cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, uh, that uh, did, not, did not seem to be a big, big of a problem. So. Uh, uh, we, we enjoyed life uh, as best possible, and, uh, uh, and this was uh, immediate, immediately before uh, World War II began. You mentioned um, Japantown and San Francisco, and you mentioned a couple of other cities, and I, I find that interesting because in most of your major cities on the West Coast, you had a Japantown or a Japanese-American right. uh, uh, or a concentration mm -hmm. of, of Japanese-American immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that, I'm sure, had to do, probably had to do with the fact that they weren't welcome, I'm sure, in other, in other neighborhoods or other, other areas. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that had something to do with the fact that, you know, immigrants tend to congregate uh, 
among people who are like themselves. But I, I wonder to what extent, uh, you know, racial discrimination, uh, segregation played in um, concentrating Japanese Americans in that particular section of the city. Well, um, what happened was most of the Japanese who came as immigrants um, uh, had very limited skills. Uh, my father was quite unusual in the, in the degree of education he had, and, uh, but most people were either um, uh, able to work in, in small uh, businesses, maybe being a shopkeeper themselves, owning small business, or there were farmers from from Japan. Um, so in general, there was really two types of people. There were the urban people who uh, lived in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and uh, Seattle, who uh, uh, concentrated on living in the community of the Japanese uh, people. Or they were uh, urban, uh, I'm sorry, uh, farmers, uh, a large number of farmers uh, who came in to California, and they settled in the farm countries like in uh, places like Sacramento, Fresno, and Imperial County. Uh, and so really there were two types of uh, people who came, who came from Japan, either the urban people or mm -hmm. the farmers. And, uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's how we uh, settled and got along uh, uh, during that time. Yeah. We, we talked uh, last night about uh, some of the challenges that right. Japanese farmers in particular faced upon their arrival um, to California, right? Um, the passage of the alien land law in 1913 mm -hmm. and 1920. Um, do you recall your father talking about that or sharing with you, um, you know, what he thought about such laws and, and the treatment of Japanese Americans? during that time, that pre-war period. Right. I, I don't recall specifically whether my father uh, discussed those particular topics. I knew that there were some problems, um, that uh, the first-generation people were not allowed to own property. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, my father could not uh, purchase the property of our home in San Francisco. Therefore, uh, he put... Uh, the ownership of our house in my brother's name. He's the older, right. older brother, and so the first son uh, uh, automatically became then uh, uh, a legal uh, point for our family to own property. And so he put the name of the property in my, my brother's uh, name, and, uh, and then that carried through. And so uh, that's what uh, most of the families did. And similarly, the farms, uh, I know other far, farm families who put the name of the farm in the uh, ownership of their, their sons or, or daughters, whoever, uh, as a way to try to get around that particular alien land law problem. Yeah, yeah I, I studied one <coughs> um, particular community, rural community, uh, farming community, just right outside of Sacramento when I was in graduate school, and I looked in particular at the impact of the alien land laws, and that was one of the, that was the, the, the most common way of kind of, I guess, getting around that law or uh, taking advantage of, you know, this particular loophole, right? In fact, I mean, Japanese farmers in Florence, and I'm not sure about other places, but they actually were able to increase their land holdings despite 
the passage of, of such laws. Um, so let's kind of fast forward a little bit and, and just look at what happened after Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. How did, how did the, the environment uh, change for not just you, your family, but for um, members of, of, of your community? Well, we, my, my initial reaction, like most of my friends uh, in the area, in San Francisco, uh, I can remember seeing the headlines uh, that, you know, we're at war and Pearl Harbor was attacked. And, and immediately the question is, why? We all asked ourselves, you know, why would they do such a thing? It was a total surprise. We had no idea. Um, and, and we were not getting answers right away because... No one knew what the answers were as to why they were doing this. Uh, and um, immediately, I mean, we, the attack took place on Sunday morning. On Monday morning when we went to school, many school teachers uh, started addressing us as, uh, quote, you people caused the problem. Immediately, you can tell the racism began immediately to the people who were thinking that we were the cause of the problem. And... and uh, it became life became very difficult for us as a result. Um, I remember the parents talking to each other about what's going to happen to us because some of them, well, most of them did not have. Um, 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 they were not Americans. They, they 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 were not citizens of the U.S. And being alien, registered aliens, they were very fearful of what might happen to them. Uh, so uh, now, just to be clear, the, the naturalization laws of the United States right. would not allow for Asians to become right. citizens. Precisely, and and uh, so most of the first generation people uh, were not citizens. They had no rights, and they remained uh, citizens of Japan, uh, and therefore they're registered as uh, aliens. And so it was a it was a very tough time for those people. Yeah. Speaking of tough time, let's talk about your father, mm. because in your presentation, mm -hmm. you, you talk about the tough time that your father had. Um, was he still working for the newspaper at the time uh, of Pearl Harbor? Oh, yes. He was, uh, he was the editor of the English section of the bilingual newspaper, so he was uh, very busy and, and gainfully employed. Uh, very difficult time for him because he had to write stories about uh, what happened, what was the cause, and uh, I remember uh, he was under suspicion by the FBI as well as others uh, in that industry. And the the media of, of the Japanese newspapers is was you know considered suspect mm -hmm. because they may be providing information uh, that's not uh, helpful to the U.S. cause, and so it, it was a tough time for for him and all of his associate workers at, at this newspaper. I, re, I remember that. Yeah. What happened to your father? Well, my father basically was among the people who the government suspected as uh, having maybe uh, close ties to Japan. And uh, I can remember uh, it was awful condition right after uh, December the 7th. And uh, my father became paranoid about evidence that maybe he was uh, closely allied to the interests of Japan. And I remember in the fireplace, uh, all these documents, these, these films, he used to have a camera and he had all kinds of films that he took. And he was worried that uh, he'll be caught with evidence that uh, 
was uh, contrary to the interests of the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, and so I remember you know, 24 hours a day he was burning things constantly, trying to get rid of everything. Um, but later on he was interviewed. And, uh, the FBI people came to our house and interviewed him in terms of his background and, and uh, whether he had any relationships to Japan and, and ties uh, to organizations that were supporting Japan rather than the U.S. And, and uh, it, w it was a difficult time. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, my parents both were very concerned about what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We are also joined by Helene Mahara. Uh, Helene is the wife of Sam Mahara. Um, Helene, I want to direct that question to you as well. We were talking about what happened uh, in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, um, the attack on Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. and the impact that that had on um, your family and members of, of your community. What, what, what do you recall? I know you were young at the, very young at the time. but Yeah, uh, I was seven years old. Okay. And... Um, I noticed that the exec executive order 9066 uh, was uh, written or signed on February 19th. Okay, on February 21st is when my father was arrested and the FBI came to the house and they took him away and he had to dress in a hurry because I don't think he had uh, that much notice before they came. He knew they were coming, but uh, I don't know how many hours or minutes or whatever um, he, time he had. So uh, uh, I was at the top of the Victorian staircase, and I watched as my mother was running around getting his... Uh, overcoat and his hat and a scarf or, and gloves because it was very cold. And, and um, when the door shut, I saw flashes of light. So apparently they were taking pictures to put into the newspaper. And I, I don't know if, uh, I don't think his was the only one that was uh, in the newspaper, but uh, I have an article with this picture mm. in the newspaper. Was this in the San Francisco Chronicle? Uh, or Examiner. Examine. I, I don't know which one. Now, what was your father's occupation? Grocery store. A grocer. And why was the FBI interested in... Uh, because he contributed money to um, some society uh, just to get rid of the people who came to the store to you know, ask for money. It's like a Japanese organization? Yes, yes. And it must have been an organization that uh, sent money to Japan, mm. but I don't know what the purpose was. And according to the FBI papers, the um, society was called Hei Mushakai. So I don't know what that means. But uh, apparently it has something to do with... Uh, the Japanese country. So that's all we know. So after your father was taken by um, the FBI, taken into custody, um, when did you see him? Uh, about, uh, let me see, we went into camp in April 
and we didn't see him until I think uh, 17 months after uh, he was taken from fe February uh, 1942 to is it about the Oh, July, uh, around July of 1943. Over a year. Yeah, Close almost a year, a year, year and, and a half. half. Wow. Yeah. Do you recall the reunion that you had uh, with your father? Would you? No. That was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But he joined us in Tule Lake, and about two months after we, he came back, we had to leave Tule Lake to go to Topaz because of the exchanges of... Uh, the people, you know, the troublemakers that came into Tule Lake, and then uh, my father was, and our family went to uh, Topaz to the a regular uh, uh, internment camp because Topaz uh, Tule Lake was turning into a, a segregation camp instead. Sam, what was the journey for your family um what did you, i mean you went did you were you sent to one of the assembly centers uh prior to being shipped off to the camp and which one were you sent to uh yes um in san francisco they divided people into those who would be going to utah versus those who were going to wyoming and for those people who were going to uh, Wyoming, they sent us to a place called Pomona, California, which is a assembly center made out of uh, state fairgrounds in near Los Angeles. Um, the others then, uh, like my wife and others, went to a place called Tanferan, which is a racetrack just south of San Francisco. And from there, they went directly to Utah. Uh, so. It, it was a it was an interesting and there's no logic be, behind why they would split up the the city that way, and and they simply decided to uh, uh, divide us us that way. So our family went to Pomona, California, which was our first uh, first camp. It was an assembly center, uh, about five thousand people, and uh, the conditions there were very very difficult. Yeah. In addition to Pomona, I, I know in Southern California uh, was it the Santa Anita. Santa Anita was another one, and it was also a, a racetrack. And uh, Santa Anita held people from the Los Angeles area. And many of the people who were in Santa Anita then also went to Wyoming. And so we all got together at, uh, in Wyoming. Uh, again, I don't know, understand the logic between why they would, they would uh, split us up that way, uh, but uh, that's what happened, and that's where we wound up. Wait, wait. You're, so when you when you first arrived yeah. um, to Hard Mountain, your impressions. What were your impressions of Hard Mountain? What, do you remember your first impressions when you were looking out oh, out, yeah. out of the train or stepped out of the train? Oh yeah, I very very clearly remember the. Um, uh, we got out of the train and met by guards who put us on the backs of. Um, on the back of a, of a truck, army truck. And, and so we piled on the back of these trucks and, and the environment was, it was windy, um, uh, typical desert-like country. And we piled on the back of these trucks until the, the truck couldn't hold any more people and then they, 
um, took us into the camp through the main gate and led us off uh, close to our assigned uh, barracks inside the camp. Um, and uh, so they knew, they were expecting us, and uh, they tried to place the people from the Pomona camp into one block or within a few blocks. Uh, so that's, that's how I remember going into the camp. Yeah. Helene, do you recall when you, the first time you, you know, saw the camp at, at Topaz in Utah? Maybe your first impressions? No, but I remember a train ride. You remember the train ride? What do you uh, remember about the train ride? Well, it was a long ride, and they pulled the shades so we can't see where we were going. And I'm the type that gets uh, motion sickness. Mm. So <laughs> most of the time, I think I was, you know, like uh, sick to my stomach. And... Uh, it wasn't a very good uh, trip to me. I wonder if the shades also were to, you know, prevent outsiders from from seeing. Oh, maybe you know, I who don't was know. actually inside yeah. the, the the train. But, I'm sure at that time, I mean, you know, given the anti-Japanese hysteria, uh, that maybe they pulled the shades down because they were trying to perhaps, you know, prevent. Violence, I don't know. The reason why we went to Thule Lake was because my father told my mother to uh, go with her um, gynecologist, obstetrician, uh, and follow her wherever she was assigned. And that's the reason why we went to Thule Lake instead of uh, Topaz. And because my mother had no one else to... Uh, help her. And she had two kids, and then she was pregnant, mm. and she gave birth in Tamfaran. Mm. So, in other words, she had three kids to take care of. And uh, we were, must have been one of the last families to uh, leave Tamfaran, because according to the record, we were there for six months. Mm. And most people left around three months time. And your father was still incarcerated yeah. at this time. Now I wonder how many how many single women with ch uh, children were in the well, same. Well, uh, this doctor had three women who ha who were pregnant, and one lady was from Hawaii, and she got stuck in the mainland because she couldn't get back to Hawaii, so she had to follow doctor around, and then this other lady. Mrs. Matsumoto um, had to go with doctor too because she was pregnant and so she gave birth in uh, Tamparan too around the same time my mother did. But her son lived and my brother was, um, he died in uh, Topaz about yeah. a year, when he was about a year old. What was, what was the cause of death? Uh, encephalitis. Uh, due to whooping cough and measles at the same time, and that caused encephalitis in his head place. And there was no way of treating that at that time. There were no doctors uh, well, available? Well, they, they couldn't seem to figure out. Yeah. To. Was that common for uh, many 
many uh, of the incarcerees, the lack of medical care, um, lack of uh, services. Was that, did you find that also to be the case? Uh, well, my, my experience uh, is that um, the government had not prepared for this mass uh, of 120,000 people and expecting the level of medical care that we would need. Uh, there weren't enough qualified med medical people in the ranks of the Japanese people. Uh, sure. Uh, they were capable of taking care of, uh, of uh, pregnancies. Uh, they were capable of taking care of broken bones and other common illnesses, but when it came down to special uh, problems, diseases, in, in our family's case, uh, in my father's case, uh, how to treat uh, glaucoma, which led to blindness. In my grandparents' case, my grandfather's case, it was um, a colon cancer, and he suffered very bad, and uh, the treatment uh, was, was very, very bad, and so, uh, um, I knew that there was a lack of um, proper medical care available among the people of Japanese ancestry. They, they brought in very few skilled people into the camp from outside the camp. Uh, uh, and uh, so that really presented a problem for, for all of us. I think it also, based on you know, our conversations, um, it also seems that it created some opportunity in the sense that um, it forced um, incarcerees to become self-sufficient, right? I mean, you know, a lot of things that were done in the camp in terms of upkeep, maintenance, self-care was done at the hands of other incarcerees, right? I mean, you had to, you had to become pretty self-sufficient in the camps. Well, uh, yeah, in terms of the daily living and trying to get along, and of course all of us needed some money to be able to buy uh, clothing and, and other essentials, uh, uh, we all had to find a source of income. Uh, not many people realized that um, our, our bank accounts were frozen. They would not let us uh, touch our money before, uh, before we came to the camps. And uh, a lot of people were scrambling to try to get uh, some money, and the only way to do it is to sell their possessions. Uh, many homes, many farms, personal possessions, the furnishings and so forth had to be sold at a, at a deep discount in order to, to, to raise some money to get ready for the camps. And therefore, there was a lot of losses, financial losses by a lot of people. And when we got to the camps, uh, of course, uh, Sure, the government provided some basic essentials like food, um, but um, uh, we had to have clothing. We had to have other expenses covered, and so uh, it was a real hardship at the time inside the camp. Yeah, <clears throat> I'd be curious to know how much wealth was lost um, as a result of uh, relocation. How much wealth Japanese Americans lost in terms of property yeah, I don't know the statistics behind it, but I do know the fact that um, there were many people who lost their homes. There were many pe many farmers who lost their farms um, uh, because uh, they were forced to sell uh, the properties. And uh, and I do know, for example, in in the one case in. Uh, in some of the farming communities, like in Imperial County in Southern California, they passed a law 
that specified the Japanese will not be allowed to do any farming at all, not in the entire uh, industry. So some 2,000 families were all of a sudden uh, shaken up and had to enter new businesses. They never returned to Imperial County. Uh, when was this law passed? During the war? Was this law passed during the war? It was passed during the war and, and existed uh, on the books for a number of years after the war. So when they went, came out of the camps and went back to, to the, um, the county, uh, uh, they were prohibited from re-entering in their uh, chosen skill. Very, very difficult. It's interesting you should mention uh, that particular example because I know, you know, based on my research in uh, Florin, California, mm -hmm. Um, that was really, it was relocation that, that mm. really destroyed mm. uh, the, the Japanese-American farming community there. They oh, were yeah. never able to recover what they lost. Mm. Um, and I, I'm sure that was the case elsewhere. Mm. But that was definitely the case in, in, in Florin, California, mm. which was at one time known as the uh, strawberry uh, capital right. of, of the state. Right. Um, and, of course, Japanese-American farmers were... Very played a critical role in, in, in that. Uh, you know, since we're on that topic, um, what about after the war was over and the whole process of resettlement? Uh, what kind of, what was that transition like for, for both of you? Helene, what was, what was that transition like for your family? Well, my father being a parolee, he was sponsored by a man in Salt Lake City, so we went to Salt Lake City, and he got a job at the Hotel Utah as a carver or a meat man uh, in the kitchen. And that's how we lived in Salt Lake City for five months. And he took a trip by himself once to see how things were in San Francisco and decided that it's time to move back. He went and see, saw how other people had settled in, and uh, he said, uh, it's time to go back, so we went back to San Francisco. Why, why, why the hesitation initially to go back to San Francisco? I think he was afraid that uh, he won't be able to open his store right away, and we didn't have a place to live. And the building that the store was located in was a Victorian home with a garage converted into a, a grocery store or fish market. Mm. And he didn't know whether he could get that same building back. So he went to see how things were. Was he able to get the same building? Yes. The, lady, the lady who owned the building uh, turned down other people who wanted to rent the house and said he's, she's waiting for Mr. Nakamoto to come back. Mm. And that's how he got the building back. Mm. And eventually, he uh, bought the house. This was, I assume this was a white woman. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, what was her name? Miss Barkhouse okay. was her name. And she was a maiden woman, and she owned a lot of uh, property. Was she sympathetic to, you know, the plight of your family? Your yes, father? yes. But uh, what sure can she others, do? Yeah, I'm sure there were others too. Yeah, who, who, who sympathized. Mm -hmm. um, 
That's why she wouldn't rent the house until he came back. Mm -hmm. And so the house stayed empty uh, for about four years, I think. Wow. Yeah. How easy, I mean, how common was that for um, people to just kind of return to their pre-war lives? I mean, was that common, your, your, your father's experience? I don't know, because his was a special case, I think, because he was a parolee. He had to report to his parole officer every week, according to the FBI files that we looked at. And that was only recently that we found this out. And uh, just before we came to, on this trip. So I kind of glanced through it, but you know, I didn't really study it. But according to this uh, report, uh, he had someone who uh, got a place to live for him and his family and he got a job at Hotel Utah through this person, and he had to report to a parole officer, and I don't know who that was, but this was all in Salt Lake City. So after he left- and This was related to his arrest, right? Right. Prior to right. relocation. Uh -huh. Wow. So he had to go through the Court of Appeals, and finally they said, yes, you, maybe paroled and lead this Department of Justice camp and then go into the regular internment camp. That's how he joined us. In, until past? No. Or to live until first, okay. Hey, Sam, what about, um, let me direct that question to you, um, the transition uh, back to civilian life after, after the camps disbanded in 1945. What was that like for you? What was that like for your family? and for others um, in your community? Well, we, I knew that we, were, we had difficulties financially, although we were able to go back into our house. Uh, fortunately, uh, my father uh, trusted uh, the care of the house uh, to a white attorney friend that we had. But uh, once we got back in, uh, now the question is, uh, how do we survive? And uh, I remember he, he had to, um, he became what we call a slumlord. He rented each room of the house by the room um, and uh, brought in other relatives and, and other people who were you know, strangers to us at the time. So, so the house was full of different kinds of people. And, and uh, I'm sure the reason being at that time he had to, he had to pay for expenses and uh, I suspect he had a mortgage at that time to take care of. But um, it was not easy. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I, w I was very busy. All of my friends were very busy uh, trying to create a, a new career for ourselves, and, and we knew education was the key. So uh, almost, almost all of my friends uh, uh, worked very hard uh, uh, going through high school and therefore trying to get into a good college uh, to, to get a good career. Yeah. So we were, we were quite busy uh, at that time. Yeah. What about your mother? I mean, how did... How did how did she, um, you know, make that transition back? Was it, what was that like for her? Well, it was, it was also difficult for her, I remember, and, and um, uh, my father became blind in the camp. He, uh, he, he was not uh, able to uh, leave the camp to get treatment for his glaucoma, so he went blind. 
And coming back to San Francisco was a very difficult transition. He had to find employment, and he found one, by the way, uh, uh, teaching. Uh, you can be blind and teach, and so that's what he wound up doing. And uh, what, what level did he teach? Well, what he did was uh, using his own skills in both English and Japanese, he taught a, uh, a English language school uh, in the back of our house. We had a large building in the back and, and converted that into a schoolroom. And um, he was, I remember, he, one of the things he did was very unusual. Um, you may have heard about the, the, uh, the, uh, the war brides from Japan that happened right after the, the war where uh, the occupation forces would uh, get married to locals in Japan and bring the wives back, and they're all uh, non-English-speaking uh, war brides. And, and they wanted to do two things. One is to learn English, and they wanted to become citizens of the U.S. So my, my father taught, uh, taught uh, courses in English uh, to these uh, the war brides, as well as uh, taught them how to become U.S. citizens. And uh, so... Uh, I remember a lot of a lot of war brides coming into our house and trying to get an, an education, which which my father was uh, capable of doing all the time while he's blind. Hmm. My mother was helping uh, in that process. It was a, I remember it was a difficult. She would be working uh, when I thought she ought to be taking care of the house and so forth. So it was it was not easy. You know. I wanted to ask you about Japantown, like post-war Japantown in San Francisco. You know, what kind of changes did you see in post-war Japantown uh, after World War II once you returned? And how did, how did the neighborhood evolve? Well, I recall uh, uh, most of the businesses that existed before the war um, uh, came back and did their best to try to, to restart. Um, um, there was a drugstore. Um, there were several restaurants. There was... Uh, uh, a general merchandise store and, and um, coffee shops, and they all, uh, they all started going right back into the field that they used to do before the war. Um, and um, I think everyone just simply tried to continue the life they used to have uh, and um, until I guess, at least the, the younger folks then became properly educated and, and went off on their own. So um, maybe the, the transition within San Francisco uh, may not have been typical of what happened in the rest of uh, California, uh, but at least in the Japan towns in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and so forth, uh, that pattern seems to be existing at that time. And people just simply try to get back to a normal living, uh, what they're skilled at doing, running businesses or providing service help and so forth. Yeah, The people who were workers had a really difficult time because of the job discrimination. Many people couldn't find jobs. Uh, uh, an example is the one I, I use in my speech where, where um, uh, this lady, uh, Toshi Ito, uh, her father was an um, insurance salesman. He, he was uh, licensed to sell insurance, and, and the, the company that gave him a license would not rehire him, and uh, he could not find another job, so he got to a point where he committed suicide. And, and Toshi uh, talks about uh, what happened, and it was a very emotional uh, scene that she uh, interviewed, and um, it, it brought home the message that uh, uh, it, it could be very, very devastating as far as uh, what uh, racial hatred can do.
uh, and it happened to us uh, during the war and after the war. In, in closing, I just mm. I want to ask you about the lessons from this period. Uh, what, what lessons can um, what lessons can we can we take from the experience of Japanese Americans during World War II? Um, to help us uh, today? Well, in, in my speeches, what I try to stress is, is the fact that um, racial hatred, the hysteria uh, that developed uh, is the basic cause of uh, incarceration, of forced removal, of den denial of our civil rights. Uh, it may not happen again it probably won't happen again to Japanese in America. Um, but I see signs that it could happen again to others. And uh, during World War II, it almost happened to the Germans and the Italians on the East Coast. Uh, but more recently, um, there's been talk about doing that to people of Middle Eastern backgrounds or perhaps uh, Muslims. Um, and even the case of Latinos, when, when people confront the issue of what to do with the, with the Latinos, especially those who are immigrants, uh, it, it, uh, it's a lesson learned that um, what happened to us should never happen to anyone. And the core, the root cause, cause of these is, is, uh, is racial discrimination. And, uh, and uh, people who think that way need to realize that uh, they might wind up someday, or their children may wind up someday in these kinds of camps. And uh, it's very important to uh, recognize uh, the uh, civil rights that all of us have under the Constitution and, and maintain it. Make sure the government uh, will adhere to these principles of the Constitution. Very, very important. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you to you, Helene. Um, this has been an interview with um, Sam Mahara and his wife, Helene Mahara. And thanks to both of you for taking time out of your schedule to uh, share your uh, personal stories about your experience uh, during this time. You're welcome. Thank you. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Association, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Subscribe on iTunes and visit our website at podcast.andover.edu. I'm Amy Morris.